Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to study verses 7 through 24 today. 7 through 24. Verses 7 through 24. I'm so old school. I love to hear the sound of the pages flipping in the Bible. That just does something to my soul. I can't hear your scroll, but I can hear the the pages turn. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 24. And and I want to say this at the outset, that my prayer today is that you don't hear um, a preacher today going off on a Kanye rant. All right. I I want you to hear what I'm saying in love and and hear it coming from the heart of a shepherd that truly cares and loves people and desire for them to grow and be all that God called them to be and do all that God called them to do. All right. So so we're going to go to study. It it might hit some rough patches, but 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 just if if it hits your toes, say ouch, say amen, but just keep it moving. All right. No, it comes from a heart of love. Ephesians chapter, seven, chapter 4, verses 7 through 24 says this. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captives. He gave gifts to the people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to feel all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Hear this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's Son. Growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Here's what happens when that happens. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching and by every 15, 30 second video on TikTok. By human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Then we get to the second half of the passage, and here's what the Apostle Paul says. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their thoughts, they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with the desire for more and more. And here's where I want to focus today, but that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him, And we're taught by him as the truth is in Jesus to take off your former 
way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Let us pray. Father, I, I, I pray today that, that according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, God, you, you said that you wanted the saints to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, today my prayer is that we would grow in grace, that we would grow in our knowledge of you. Father, I pray that whatever it is that is going on in our hearts and minds today, Father, I pray that you would shine your light there, God. I pray that you would give us the oil of joy for mourning. I pray, God, that you would mend our hearts, that you would renew our minds, that you would transform us right where we are. And so, Father, I pray that we don't go through the motions today, but I pray today we experience the grace, the love, the truth that is in Christ Jesus today. And so, Father, I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit, you speak to your people, God. I pray that you would work on us, God, that you would make us look more like Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you for everything that's been said, and we thank you for everything that's been done. In Jesus' name we pray. The people of God said, Amen. You may be seated. My sermon title this morning is Everything We Need. Every, everything we need. This passage is in a section of the book of Ephesians about unity and and spiritual maturity. And and the interesting thing is with this call to unity and spiritual maturity, the Bible does not assume, hear me, the Bible does not assume that unity amongst the saints and spiritual growth for the believer happens by accident. Spiritual maturity doesn't happen just because you've been saved for a certain amount of time. A person can have been saved for 10 years and still be a babe in Christ. Also, our spiritual maturity is something that we have to understand that Christ died for. Christ didn't just die to save you. He died to save you and then grow you. But on the flip side of that, if if God's desire for us is to be united, God doesn't just expect us to be united by our own willpower. God doesn't leave us to our own devices to figure out how we can be united to one another. God actually does something about it. Christ actually died not just to save us and to grow us, but Christ also died to unite us. Unity is something that actually came along with our salvation in Christ. When Christ died, he just, it didn't just die to reconcile people to God. He also died so that we would be reconciled to each other. And all of the walls of hostility that were put up, all the things that are about each other that we don't like, all the different maybe races and ethnicities or, or, or socioeconomic statuses that we all can come from, maybe those things separate us at a time. But, but once we are in Christ Jesus, he tore down those walls and he brought us together he united us and he made us one so it is our responsibility to live in that reality and realize that although you may be different than I am our differences do not separate us but in Christ we are one and we are united when you became a believer if you were our only child now you got thousands of siblings you are no longer an only child you have multiple 
siblings who, who, who have the same father. And so when Jesus died, he brought us together. He put us together in one group, created one new man, and that one new man is called the church. We are one new man made up of a diverse group of people who are now called the body of Christ that have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. And God has called us to both grow and to be united, and we do that, and we grow together. And the beautiful thing is that that God doesn't just expect it to happen. God doesn't just expect us to do it. But God is so gracious and so kind and so wonderful and so powerful that God has given us everything we need to grow and be united together. So it's just not up to us, but God has equipped us. And so when we get to the first section of this passage, verses 7 through 10, it says some real weird, some, some real funky, a little off. You kind of don't know maybe where it comes from. And, and Paul is talking about the grace that was given to each one of us with the measure of Christ's gift. And he talks about for when he ascended on high, he took the captives captives and he gave his gifts to people. And then it says, but what, what does it mean that he ascended means that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? What, what is he even talking about? Paul is actually trying to paint a picture for us, but Paul is drawing from an Old Testament illustration. Paul grabs something from Psalm 68. If you're taking notes, verses 7 through 10 in Ephesians chapter 4, basically Paul is paraphrasing, or shall I say he's remixing Psalm 68 verse 18. It is a picture of God going into battle, that God goes to battle, takes over an enemy, takes those who had his people captive, God takes those people captives, and God is ascending up to the highest hill from a parade of people or surrounding God, cheering God on as he has accomplished victory for the people. And so oftentimes, here's what we need to understand, and in Antiquity, when a king went into a foreign country and a king took over a land or took over a territory, oftentimes the king didn't just take over that land and that territory. The king actually took people and the king took possessions. And sometimes when a king went into a foreign territory and conquered that territory, the people who were still alive from that foreign territory before they were killed, they would give gifts to that foreign king. And their gifts were a sign of surrender. But their gifts were not just a sign of surrender. Their gifts were also a sign of submission. So if a foreign actor comes over and takes over our territory, we give him gifts to show him, hey, I don't want no problems with you. I don't want no beef with you. I'll do whatever you ask me to do as long as you don't kill me. And so what it's saying is, is that God took those gifts and received gifts from people. And now he relates it to Christ Jesus, that Jesus descended from the highest heavens down into the earth, into his humanity. Jesus died and was resurrected. And in the course of that, he defeated our greatest nemesis, which was Satan, sin, and death. He overcame all of them. He took them captive, made him captive to them. But everything that he took, he now uses for his glory. And instead of receiving gifts from people, Christ Jesus has gained gave gifts to his people. So when we see verses 7 through 10, it is a picture of God as a warrior, of Christ as a warrior who has now taken captive the things that which had us captive at one point. And now he gives those spoils to his people to use for his glory, and we have everything that we need. To, to make it plain to you, if you can't follow along with me, I love Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington is the greatest actor ever. That's my opinion. I have the microphone, so that's what it is today. 
I, I love Denzel because Denzel is, can play a, a, a whole bunch of roles. He's, he's a great actor. But, but I, there's this one, I know some of you don't watch movies. You only watch 30-second videos. Um, but but I, I still watch movies. I'm old school, and I love Denzel. And there's one series that he's, that he's done. There's a sequel. There's one, and then there's a sequel, and it's called The Equalizer. The Equalizer comes on TV like every day. And, and Denzel is, is like this uh, former Marine special ops intelligent officer who knows how to fight and do all kind of crazy stuff and blow people up and beat them with stuff from a, a hardware store. Like, he's, he's crazy, right? And, and some of y'all are like, Denzel's old. I, I I'm okay with a 67-year-old man beating up some enemies. And so I love this movie, The Equalizer. Well, on the first Equalizer, there's a, a Russian oligarch who's uh, this uh, person who is, uh, has these illegal businesses in the United States. He runs a drug ring. He's doing money laundering. He's doing prostitution and all those things. But Denzel is this retired person who works at the hardware store. He reads books in a diner. And one time, the, the Russian oligarch's prostitution business beat up this girl because she wasn't doing something. And Denzel was friends with this young lady. And so he took it upon himself to take over this Russian oligarch's uh, businesses. So he wanted to tear a whole the whole kingdom down. Well, there's a scene in the movie where he goes to this warehouse um, and they have all of these workers there, but it's guarded by all these gangsters. And Denzel goes in there. These gangsters have these people captive and they're working for the people counting all this money. It It is money as far as the eye can see, like money stacked on top of money. It's crazy. Denzel goes in there though because Denzel is bad and he's like this, this ninja type of dude. And, and Denzel takes captive the people who had the other people captive. And he takes them captive and he lets the people who were once working for them, he now sets them free. So he takes the captives captive and he sets these people free. But before they go free, you know what he does? He stands at the door and he breaks all of them off with a wad of money. He supplies them with everything that they would need moving forward. Now that they are free, I'm not just going to free you, but I'm going to free you and equip you and give you everything you need to go out and live and be who God called you to be. And this is the same thing that Jesus has done for us. He has set us free and he's equipped us to have everything that we need. And so Jesus has given gifts. And guess who he gave the gifts to? The church. He gave gifts to the church. He gave gifts to the church. And why would he give gifts to the church? Because he gave the church an assignment to establish and expand his kingdom. Jesus gave the church an assignment to establish and expand his kingdom. And that's called the Great Commission. And I think it's good that we would have a refresher on what the Great Commission is. Our own church mission is a rendition of the Great Commission. Let's read it in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Let's let's read the Great Commission together. Here's what it says. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Here's the first thing he says to them. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, no matter what they look like or where they're from, no matter if they're different from you, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am always with you to the end of the age. And here's what this text is telling us, that that Jesus has given us a measure of grace 
that coincides with the gifts that we've been given so we can do what he's called us to do. And I want to tell you something today. I don't care how you feel about yourself or how you view yourself. When you got saved, God gave you a spiritual gift. You have a spiritual gift. You who sit on the sideline and watch the rest of the Christians serve, you too have a spiritual gift. God has given you something to do. God has given everybody a gift. Some people have a gift to sing. Some people have an administration gift. Some people have a gift to preach. Some people have a gift to teach. Some people have a gift to to be generous and give. People have different types of gifts, but everybody has a gift, so therefore we have no excuses. You don't pick your gift, you discover your gift. And how do I discover my gift? Not by sitting on the sideline. And so here's what we need to know. When he gave us this great commission, it was not just something for the professionals. When he gave it to his disciples, it resounded to all of the disciples that would ever be born. All of the people that he would save needed to follow this great commission. And so God has invited us into this mission, and we must see that this is God's invitation. This is a gracious invitation that God has given us, and we must see God's invitation to us to participate as better than any job promotion. We must see it as better than any pay increase, better than any association we could ever join. None of that stuff even matters if those things are not leveraged for his purposes and for his glory. None of it matters. doesn't matter what you accomplish on your own. doesn't matter who knows your name. No matter how much money you make, if it's not leveraged for his purposes, it does not matter to God. And so if it's just you accomplishing stuff to beat your chest and to put you in a better position to glorify the kingdom of self, it means absolutely nothing to God. God only gives us favor and influence so that we can leverage it for him and for his glory. So if God has given you influence, it's not for you, it's for him. And this is what the Great Commission is. God, God wants us to use the gifts that he has given us for his purposes and for his glory so that we can benefit other people. Paul understood his own gift this way. If we were to turn back to chapter 3, Paul gives us a perspective on how he views his own spiritual gift. Ephesians 3, verse 2, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Assuming you have heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you. Look at it again, Ephesians 3 and 2. He says, assuming you've heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you. Paul realized that God gifted him for other people. God gave us gifts for the benefit of others. And each person, each blood-bought, blood-washed believer has to live in that reality. That if you're good at something and you recognize what it is, God didn't give that to you for you. He gave it to you for others and for him. And so we come to church God doesn't invite us into this to sit on the sidelines. 
But he has another idea about why we come to do this. Yes, it is to enjoy each other. Yes, it is to fellowship with the saints. Yes, it is to worship the king. We're supposed to do that stuff. All that stuff is important and significant. We need all of it. Yes, it's to sit under the word of God. Yes, it's to be encouraged. Yes, it's to be convicted. Yes, it's to hear the gospel. It is all of those things, and I would never take anything from any of that stuff. But God has a specific practical purpose for us to be here. We don't come to church for entertainment. We come for equipping. God did not bring you here to be entertained. What's the movie say? Are you not entertained? God didn't bring you here for me to entertain you, for for the praise and worship leader and and the praise singers in the band to entertain you. No, that's not what it's for. But you are here to be equipped to do what God called you to do. So we have to change our perspective. This is not, hey, I'm going to go watch the professional Christians do their job. No, this is not a concert. This is church. And you're not here to be entertained. You're here to be equipped. And so Paul lists a group of four that have been especially equipped to help the saints to discover their calling and to do everything that God has called them to do. And here's what he he points out for us in verse 11 through 14. And here's gifts that he gave to the church. Verses 11 through 14, look at this. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And so those people that he just named, those, those groups of four that he just named all have a specific task and responsibility, and their job is to equip the saints. Who is the saints? You. I know you feel like an ain't, but you're a saint. You are a saint. And so when he equips them, they build up the body of Christ. Well, how long I got to build up the body of Christ? Until we all reach unity in the faith in the knowledge of God's Son growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. When that happens, when that happens, then we will no longer be little children confused about our faith, not sure what we believe from week to week. Tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, a video that we saw on TikTok and on Instagram, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of the sea. He says that these people, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, they, they equip, they train the saints, they, they perfect the saints, they complete the saints, they, they train them to have everything they need to do the work of ministry and to do what God called them to do. This is why it is so vital that we treat this Sunday morning as more than just a casual weekend social event that has no real bearing on my real life. I mean, this is church, but it don't have nothing to do with my my, my real life. That that couldn't be further from the truth. If you are in Christ, it has everything to do with your life. That's why it's important that you be here. And so, if the goal is for you to be equipped, it must mean that there's something for everyone to do. There's something for everyone to do. It's not just for the people you deem as the professional Christians. It's for everyone Every person that has been saved by the precious blood of Jesus is to be engaged in spiritual labor in the church. Let me say that again for the people in the back that didn't want to hear what I just said. Every person that has been saved by the precious blood of Jesus is to be engaged in spiritual labor in the church. 
And so when the pastor, shepherd, teacher pushes you to do a job, it's for your benefit. It's for your benefit. And so, so I, I just was thinking, and I posed a list of questions about the, these apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers in the church, these, these, these people in these roles that are, that, are, that are biblical leaders. Do we see these people as gifts that God has given the church, or do we see them as a nuisance to our personal agendas? Do we see them as authority to be rejected when you don't agree? When even if your disagreement is not rooted in Scripture, but it's rooted in your own feelings that are not informed by Scripture, do you, do you, do you see them as that? People to reject when you don't agree with something? Let me tell you all something. Agreement is overrated. God ain't looking for your agreement. He's looking for your submission. I don't agree. Nobody cares. It's the, not the leader's job to agree with you. It's their job to push you. Or do we see the people who serve in church and invest all of their time and resources? Do we see them as the professional Christians that entertain us each week so that we can check off our little religious box, although we have no intention on letting the word of God get into our hearts and transform the way we live so that we can be who God redeemed us to be? You know, I, I would participate, and I would serve, but I'm busy. And here's my favorite. I just got a lot going on. I just got, I got so much going on. Hear this in love. Remember I said at the outset, don't, don't hear this as a Kanye rant. Hear this in love. Hear this in love. You don't have a lot going on. People with cancer have a lot going on. People who are taking care of people who have Alzheimer's and dementia, they have a lot going on. You don't have a lot going on. People who are in the ICU on a ventilator because of COVID, they got a lot going on. People who don't have a place to sleep tonight and not sure if they're going to be able to make it into the homeless shelter in time because they don't know where they're going to lay their head, they, they got a lot going on. You ain't got a lot going on. You don't, you don't have a lot going on. We, we don't have a lot going on. We just have preferences that we masquerade as priorities that take precedence over the kingdom. I will. We, we don't have a lot going on. We, we just have preferences that we masquerade as priorities that take precedence over the kingdom. We are too busy to build the kingdom of God because we're too busy building our own. And you know what God does to kingdoms that build that, that don't have anything to do with him? He eventually tears them down. So if your kingdom hadn't been torn down yet, I'll wait. It's just a matter of time. But God invites us in to build his kingdom, and his kingdom is glorious. His kingdom is eternal. And guess what else? His kingdom is better than yours. Wait a minute, but mine is outside of the church. I'm not saying... If there's anything wrong without doing work outside of the church, that, that's, that's what we should do. That's what it means to live on mission. We say it like this, we live on mission. We, 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 we desire to see people live on mission where they live, learn, work, and play. You are to live on mission outside of the world. God has called people to do that, but that doesn't mean you negate the local church. It's not one or the other, it's both. It's both. And one or two Sundays out of the month with no participation and involvement, 
with other Christians is not Christianity. I love the way R.C. Sproul said it. R.C. Sproul is one of my favorite preachers that's going on to heaven at this point. He had this quote. Here's what he said. He said, the pursuit of God is not a part-time weekend exercise. If it is, chances are you will experience a part-time weekend freedom. Abiding requires a staying power. The pursuit is relentless. It hungers and thirsts. It pants as the deer after the mountain brook. It takes the kingdom by storm. The pursuit of God is a pursuit of passion. Indifference will not do. To abide in the word is to hang on tenaciously. A weak grip will soon slip away. Discipleship requires staying power. We sign up for duration and we don't graduate until heaven. This is what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. This is what God wants for us. And this is what you are being trained to do for the kingdom of God outside and inside of the church. You are being equipped in particular to build up the body of Christ. And we are not mere individuals isolated doing our own thing. Let me tell you something about the church, this body of Christ you are far more connected to the person that is in Christ sitting next to you than you are from a sibling from the same family with the same ethnic background and the same DNA. So whether you like them or not, whether they look like you or not, that's your brother. And there's nothing you can do about it. Just like you can't get rid of that crazy uncle or that crazy auntie, you can't get rid of your brother or sister in Christ. We are being equipped to build each other up. And here's what I love, he says, until we all reach unity. Until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's Son. You know what the word all there means in the Greek? All. (laughs) We are growing, and that growth is happening as we grow together in intimacy with Christ. And so we are growing in maturity and away from spiritual infancy. Just as babies grow and mature, Christians do as well. When we see a little baby, little baby, we like little babies, we see a baby, and then we don't see the baby for a while, for another three, six months, and we look and see the baby again. And guess what? The baby has gotten bigger. Things happen when, when, a, baby is, uh, when, when a child is a baby. The, what they wore when they were first born, they can't wear a few months later. Why? Because they've outgrown it. At the wild, no, no one has to feed them a bottle. They, they actually can start eating real food eventually at some point because they are growing. They, they, they start growing up and they, they no longer walk, crawl. They, they start walking because they are growing. They, they say little mumbo jumbo, but eventually they, they start talking and making complete sentence, sentences eventually because they are growing. And so if somebody had a baby and they brought a baby and they told you that the baby was 10 years old, you'd be like, something's wrong. It is possible that they, outside of some sort of medical condition, it would be abnormal for a 10-year-old to still be a baby. But some of us are 10-year-old Christians, and we still need somebody to spiritually breastfeed us, pat us on the back. We still keep going to the bathroom on ourselves. But the good news is God can clean you up. And God can grow you, but you won't grow by yourself. Just like a baby needs other people to nurture and care for it, you need other people to do the same thing for you. 
Are y'all following me? And so God calls us to grow and to mature by the measure of Christ's fullness, meaning how will I know when I've arrived? When you look just like Jesus. Guess when you're going to look just like Jesus? When he comes back. Guess how long that means you got to grow then? For the rest of your life. It's a nonstop, ongoing process of maturation and sanctification until we are mature in Christ Jesus. At this point, some of us have been long enough, been around long enough, we should be teachers. But we still need somebody to teach us. But somebody today should say, no longer, I'm going to grow up, I'm going to read everything, I'm going to serve everywhere they need me, I'm going to get engaged, I'm going to get involved, I'm going to stop making excuses, I'm not going to stop preferring brunch over church, I'm going to stop all that nonsense. I'm going to be who God died for me to be. I don't want to say that his blood was wasted for me because it was not. When God saved you, he either saved you or he didn't save you. This is a reflection of that. How you approach the body of Christ is a reflection of what you believe about your salvation. And so, then we will no longer be children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. Um, This is interesting because it assumes that that there is teaching that can blow Christians like the wind if they're not stable in Christ. Um, Monday, something interesting happened. There was an outage on Facebook and Instagram on Monday. And I was just thinking about it. I was like, there's some people in my church dying right now. I just saw some of y'all face. I bet some of y'all about died on Monday. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? You didn't know what to do with yourself. You kept refreshing. You kept cutting your phone off, starting back, repowering it, thinking, man, I knew I should have downloaded that update. You about died when it went out. You know why you almost died? Because it's your idol. And your brain was revealing to you, we can't live without it. We can't live without it. You got to do something. And none of you thought at that point, I should pick up my Bible. Where's the lie? Where's the lie? Just say amen. Amen, Pastor. But if we drench our brains in that every day of our lives, and have little minimal contact with the Word of God, it's no wonder we don't act like Christians. It's no wonder why our perspective about church and the people of God and Jesus is off. And we're looking for something to blame when we bear the responsibility. Much of the delusion meant that Christians and non-Christians alike have with the church has nothing to do with the church, but more so it has to do with being trained and instructed by everything but the Word of God. Much of our discontentment, our dissatisfaction, our consternation is shaped by uninformed opinions and our own feelings. But when was the last time you felt some way about the local church or your pastor or your brothers and sisters in Christ and proceeded to check the legitimacy of what you felt by the word of God? I'm not condemning you. I'm trying to pastor you. I'm trying to pastor you. God doesn't want us to be disillusioned. God wants us to seek more of the truth. God wants us to know the truth and to teach us the truth so that we can share the truth with one another. And so we will grow the more contact we have with the truth. And here's the thing about the truth. The truth is not just a subject. The truth is a person. 
That person's name is Jesus. And we ought to speak that truth to each other and do it in love. Here's what it says in verse 15 through, verses 15 to 16. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ, from the him the whole body fit fitted and knit together by every support and ligament promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Now, I want to say this. We should hold each other to account. We should, be a, we should, we should hold each other to accountability. Um, but, but it's just not what we say. It's how we say it that matters. We can't confront, confront each other for conf- confrontation's sake. The aim of our confrontation has to be rooted in love and our desire to see the other person grow in Christ. Not for gossip's sake, but for God's sake. That we care about people enough that we enter into their lives and say, hey, I love you. I hope you receive this well, but I think you're a little off here. Right? But we have to also be mature enough to to, to say when somebody comes to me, that if they come to me in love, I have to be humble enough sometimes to receive it. And that's easier said than done. But this is what the Bible calls us to. I love you and I care for you. Bro, I love you and I care for you, but you need to snap out of it. Since you've been stuck here for a long, it's two years. Cry me a river, build a bridge and get over it. And I'm not saying that we tell people to get over their hurt, their pain, that's really traumatic, some real stuff. But some of this stuff, come on, man. Some of this stuff is just a matter of opinion and you're just disillusioned because things aren't going your way. Not everything is somebody else's fault. Let's grow together in every way. In every sense, every way. So that means every part of our life we're supposed to be growing. I, I, I liken it to um, people who work out at the gym, right? Um, I go to the gym every blue moon about once a month, all right? So just, I just, I'll just do some self-deprecating comedy so you can't pick at me and hold it against me because Pastor, I don't, you don't look like you've been to the gym. <laughs> but you go to the gym and you see people who are muscular, who are big, like, man, like, whoa, that dude is Jack. Or that young lady is Jack. Man, they're big, right? And you go there. But, 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 but here's what's crazy sometimes. Here's, you know, the funny thing is to see somebody jacked up and big and you keep scanning down and they got little bitty legs and it's like, oh, man, oh, man, you was working the upper body, bro, but you didn't do it. I, and I hate it when I go to the gym because the dude I work out with, he gets on my last nerves. And before he leaves, like, let's do the legs. I can walk just fine. I don't need to do the legs. I can, my, my legs work just fine. I don't need to work out my legs. But, but that's so important because if your, leg is, your legs are strong, it helps you with your upper body. But here's the thing. Some of us are grown in upper body. We can lift. Some of us been skipping leg day. Some of us been skipping leg day. You'll serve down. You'll serve somebody out. The, you'll, you'll serve every Sunday. But some of us still cuss. We skip leg day. But God wants us to grow in every way so that we can be proportioned, right? And the source of growth is Christ Jesus. Stay connected to him and then we will grow. But the danger for us is that some of us are isolated from the body. 
And isolation is dangerous. That's why, that's why corporate growth is what is emphasized. Corporate growth and participation is necessary for every believer. But when we're isolated, what ends up happening is we take on the mindset in the worldview of the world versus the kingdom of God. And we begin to more, to, more to look like them than we look like Christ. And that's what we must avoid. So here's what he says in verses 17 through 19. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They're darkening their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with the desire for more and more. The less contact you have with the truth, the more of a downward spiral a person will go in. Whenever you, these people, these Gentiles are unbelievers, essentially. They rejected the truth. And their rejection of the truth further made their hearts hard. They were stubborn in their hearts because they rejected the truth. And so we need all of the contact with the truth that we can have because the truth sets us free. You see, the people that he's referring to, the unbelievers, the Gentiles, they didn't lack information. They had all the information that they needed. They, they didn't lack information just like our generation doesn't lack information. We got more information than anybody that's ever lived. We, we got information overload. They didn't, they didn't have a lack of information. They just rejected the truth. Our generation is doing the same thing. All of the access to God's truth that, they ha- that we have, they have it as well. They just reject that truth. They, they reject the truth. Their, their lives are rooted in whatever it means to please themselves. And it points to a downward spiral. And all it does is lead, is lead to a life of emptiness. It says that they had a desire for more and more. Here's what, here's what we need to know about carnality. And it's true. It will never be enough. It is an unending cycle of a pursuit of carnality in the flesh. And we have to wake up out of it if that's where we are. And we have to turn our desires towards God and desire him the same way we desire the old life. And here's why this is important. How we live is an indication of what we truly believe, not just what we confess with our mouths. Whenever we live in opposition of what God has called us to, it reveals that we don't truly understand or believe the truth that God has given to us. That is why it is utterly important for us to pursue the truth as much as possible. Because when we don't, it affects how we live and therefore ultimately distracts us from our call to follow Christ and represent him in the world. I love what A.W. Tozer says. He says, a whole new generation of Christians has come up believing that it is possible to accept Christ without forsaking the world. And so, I want to read this last section. Verses 20 through 24. I love what it says. That's not how you came to know Christ. Look at that. Verse 20. You you should underline that in your Bible. Every time we find ourselves in opposition to God, in opposition to the truth, let verse 20 ring true in your heart and your mind. But that's not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. 
Take off the desires of your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the old self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. This is not how you came to know Christ. Let me remind you and give you a refresher of how we came to know Christ. And I want to read this and then we'll be done. Matthew 27, verses 26 through 50. Matthew 27, verses 26 to 50, and I want this to sit with us. Because there were parts of this that I read, and I literally had tears in my eyes. Here's your reminder. Here's how we came to know Christ. When we find ourselves excluded from the life of God and from the people of God, let this remind you. Then he released Barabbas to them, and after Having Jesus flogged, meaning he got beat with some sort of leather belt or some sort of whip, whip, and he handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. I want you to imagine some stranger stripping you naked. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head placed a staff, a stick, a hard stick in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hell, king of the Jews! Then they spit on him. I want you to imagine somebody spitting on you. Spitting on your face. They took the staff and kept hitting hitting him in the head. So far, he's been whipped, he's been spat on, and they continue to beat him in his head with a stick. I want you to imagine you going through that. And after they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. As they were going out, they found a Cyrenian named Simon, a guy from North Africa. They forced him to carry his cross. And they came to a place called Golgotha. They gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he refused to drink. And after crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by were yelling insults at him shaking their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He is the King of Israel, but let let him come down from the cross, and then we'll believe him. He trusts God. Let, Let God rescue him now, if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. From noon to three, darkness came over the whole land, and about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put put it on a stick and offered him a drink, but the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit, meaning he died. This is what happened in order for you to be free. 
in order for you to no longer be bound and to be free and to now have a new life. Shortly after this, they put a spear in his side. So we have a whipping, a crown of thorns, being spit on in the face over and over again, being bit, being beat in the head with a stick over and over again, being insulted, being stripped naked, having a pierce, uh, having your side pierced with blood, goozing, ushing out your side. Hey, all of that happened so that you could be free. And we oftentimes have the audacity to only think about ourselves. When a man literally gave his life and was violently, savagely beaten so that you could be free to serve. And this is not to condemn you. And I'm done. This is not to condemn you. But this is to say, to sit and not do anything and to live your own life and do your own thing and to build your own kingdom is a mockery of the finished work of Jesus. It is to say that his work was not sufficient for me. And I'll read this and I'm done. Romans 6, verses 6 through 11. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is free from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. When he got up, you got up too. He got you up and raised you in victory with him so that you can finish the work that he had already started. We need to see this as an invitation to be a part of the greatest mission that this world has ever known. There's nothing else in your life that you can do or accomplish. And I'm not just talking pastor speak. If I stop pastoring today, I will still believe this because it's true. That God has invited each and every person in this room to be a part of the greatest thing that's ever happened. There ain't a company, there ain't an organization that you can join. There ain't a thing that you can accomplish that will ever take precedence over the kingdom of God. And for some of us, God is waiting for you to say yes. How long will you continue to build your own kingdom that eventually will be torn down? How long will you serve yourself only to come to the end and find out that you should have been serving God all along? This is what he set us free to do. The gospel has real life implications. God has called us along to follow him, to serve his mission for his kingdom. And he's given us everything that we need. God has called you, not your neighbor. He's called you. 
Get off the sideline. Get in the game. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you.